You're listening to the Eyes on Conservation podcast, episode 144. Welcome to the Eyes on Conservation podcast, where we bring you engaging conversations about wildlife conservation from all across the globe. Hunters have historically been leading conservation efforts going all the way back to Teddy Roosevelt, who who was himself an avid hunter and a huge proponent of the protection of wildlife and wildlife habitat. This merger of hunting and conservation persists today. Matt Podolsky spoke with Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation's Chief Conservation Officer, Blake Henning, about the organization's efforts to maintain the North American wildlife conservation model, recognizing that fish and wildlife belong to all Americans and that they need to be managed in a way such that their populations will be sustained in perpetuity. Well, my name is Blake Henning, and uh, I am the Chief Conservation Officer here at the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation. I've been with the organization in over 18 years now, and uh, spent uh, the first five in Wyoming as a field director, fundraiser, working with volunteers and kind of our uh, grassroots grassroots support system. And I've uh, been in now in, here in uh, Missoula for you know over a dozen years and had various positions. I am a, a wildlife biologist by training. I have a master's degree in, in wildlife biology. And uh, and so, you know, I one of the best jobs in the organization, I think, I really get to uh, uh, oversee implementation of, of our mission programs. Very cool. Are you a hunter as well? Oh, yes. Yeah, I'm a hunter, uh, lifelong. Uh, grew up on a farm in eastern Nebraska and, uh, you know, influenced by my dad and my grandfather and uh, brothers and cousins and big family that was doing it you know I, I wouldn't say i'm rabid about it but i i do a fair amount of it and enjoy it gotcha gotcha so let's start off with a little bit of background on uh this organization you work for the rocky mountain elk foundation what's the origin is there is there a story behind the founding of rocky mountain elk foundation yeah there, there's a, a really cool story the organization was founded in Troy, Montana, which is a small town way up in very northwestern part of Montana. It was founded by uh, four guys that were elk hunters, um, but one was a pastor, one was an insurance salesman, um, uh, another one was a logger, and uh, of the four, two of them were brothers, and and you know they, I think they were just they all went to the same church and. Uh, I think one day over, uh, I don't know, it's over coffee, uh, you know, one of them got to talking about, you know, there should be an organization for elk like there is for ducks and, and turkeys. And, and of course, these guys lived up in, a, you know, in, in elk country and in some very heavy forested uh, area of northwest Montana and, and felt like, uh, um, you know, they wanted to do good things for elk and other wildlife. And uh, that was in 1984. and uh, you know, certainly there were some rough years uh, uh, trying to find the funding to, to start up the organization and uh, things were lean. But uh, and two of the founders are still involved in the organization. They sit on the their honorary members of the board of directors and they still influence the organization to some degree and, and really kind of make sure we stay at least, uh, you know, for the most part connected to that grassroots uh, uh, working man, working woman's organization. Yeah, absolutely. 
very cool. Um, so, you know, I, one of the sort of central concepts that I want to explore in this conversation is, uh, you know, how interconnected uh, hunting is with conservation. And obviously, you just said, you just told the story about the founding of the organization. I mean, the goal of these four people was to protect these elk herds so that they could continue Right. Um, and now, you know, you're a hunter. I am also a hunter. Um, you know, I, I think both of us understand um, these connections between hunting and conservation. Um, but not everybody does. Right. And I mean, there is right. a, a fair amount of polarization and there's stereotypes on both sides. Um, so I, I don't know. I mean, maybe you can just talk a little bit about, you know, that concept of connecting hunting with conservation. Um you know, maybe, you know, maybe there's like certain key sort of uh, like historical components to that that you want to bring up to sort of, you know, explain to people like on both sides, whether they're hunters or, uh, you know, environmentalists um, to, to kind of show people like how interconnected these two uh, things are. Yeah, um, you know, it's a really important uh, point and message, I think, today is uh, the role that hunters have. Uh, it's a very important point and a uh, piece of what the Elk Foundation talks about a lot. I mean, we have a saying here that hunting is conservation, uh, and, and we believe that, and, and hunters pour millions of dollars per year annually into conservation programs. You know, when it goes back to, uh, you know, the very early 1900s or late 1800s when a lot of our uh, game species were on the brink of extinction. Uh, they had been over-harvested, you know, over-hunted, uh, uh, the bison, elk, uh, very small numbers, deer, uh, very small numbers left uh, by the, by the you know, 1910, 1905, something like that. Um, but there, and so, you know, there were hunters like Teddy Roosevelt uh, and others that, that first became very concerned about the, the loss of these herds that they themselves like to pursue uh, and hunt. And so they, as hunters, formed groups. Uh, they later on in the early 1900s agreed to tax themselves. So, and still today, there's an excise tax on firearms and ammunition and, and bows. And uh, we call that kind of the Pittman-Robertson uh, funding program. And I think now you know, maybe over $11 billion um, has been put into conservation programs through those taxes on hunters. So, uh, you know, I think hunters, you know, were kind of the first, I think, to say, hey, uh, we're losing our herds. We need to do something. Uh, then they said, all right, we need to find the money. Uh, let's uh, tax ourselves. We're willing to commit dollars. And that, that model has lasted a long time and been very beneficial. Now, it, 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 that model, a lot of that model, North American model of wildlife management is what we call that. It's a, it's a term to kind of describe how, how we've kind of got to where we are today with conservation funding and the involvement of hunters and, and land management agencies and state wildlife agencies. Uh, but one of the, and there's several tenets of that North American model, but, uh, you know, one of them is that, um, uh, wildlife belong to the people. Um, you know, they're held in trust. And, and a key point for us is that, uh, 
you know, we believe strongly in this state-based management idea. And, and so you have state wildlife agencies. And again, they're funded by licenses and fees for the most part that hunters pay. Uh, so there's that very strong historical connection for hunters, uh, supporting conservation. And, and, you know, the, the biological side of it is, is that we have game laws, we have science that allows the surplus of, of the game herd, you know, the, the portion that's not needed to keep the species moving, that surplus, that's the, those are the numbers we can harvest as hunters and we can take them and, and, uh, eat their meat and, and, uh, you know, that's our protein source and live from them. But, but that, that science-based management ensures that the species will be perpetuated as well. And I think, I guess, you know, as our society has changed and we've become more urbanized, um, for many people have kind of lost that connection. Their grandfather may have hunted, but, but their, their dad or mom didn't. And so that's that challenge out there today and kind of why you're, you probably do what you do a little bit is to, um, try to bring people together and, uh, demonstrate that, you know, hunters aren't the evil people out there that just want to kill everything. Um, uh, we, you know, we have a strong historical stake, uh, in wildlife management and, uh, we look for, you know, others to, to come together and environmentalists to, to work together in these issues. Absolutely. And, um, you know, I think there's just a couple key points to, to what you said that I kind of want to, you know, reiterate and, and touch on again. I mean, one is science-based management, right? And, and how important that is. And, you know, the fact that hunters are actually playing this important role in managing functioning systems, right? Um, so that's one component to it, um, to that. But then I think the other component to it is like on uh, like a more personal level for hunters themselves, people who go out and hunt, and sort of like why they do it. And I mean, I think that's one of the biggest stereotypes. It's not so much like the big picture management question, but like what drives hunters on a personal level, right? And I mean, I've talked to um, a number of, of hunters, folks who sort of weren't raised, uh, you know, in, in a family where hunting was something that people did, maybe raised in an urban environment, but then got into hunting later in life. I've talked to a number of people who fit, actually, I mean, I fit that model as well, right? I mean, I had a realization point like this. I, you know, learned how to hunt um, in my 20s. And, you know, I, I think the stereotypes for me, I think were not as extreme as, as, as some folks. Um, but I think there definitely was a realization point of like, wow, it's, it's hard. It's difficult to like mm, track yes. these animals. And mm. in order to be successful in a hunt, like you need a really deep understanding of these ecosystems and these animals and how they interact. You know? Yes. Yeah, exactly. It is not easy. And particularly if you're an elk hunter, you know, it's not easy. Um, you know, for me growing up and, and into my thirties, hunting revolved a lot around family, spending time with brothers, my dad, um, family members. Now I, I live quite a ways away from them now. Um, and I still hunt with friends, but I enjoy just being out there myself. Uh, it's, it's time in the woods, um, on the grasslands and open country. Uh, it's the challenge 
of, of uh, you know, you against the animal in their environs. And I'm not terribly successful. Uh, you know, I don't kill an elk every year like some, like some people think I might. And But I keep doing it. Um, one, I, I pay buy my licenses because that's conservation. And I like the exercise. I like the challenge. I like being outside and, and the pursuit. And if I get lucky enough to get within range and make a successful shot, then, then that's really uh, the icing on the cake. But that's not completely why I do it. Now, there is the other part of it is it's a great food source. And, and that is another reason in there. And, and, uh, uh, but, but still, there's these other values in there. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I just think that's a really important message to convey to folks. You know, uh, the level of, you know, the deep level of understanding you have to have of, you know, both this, the target species, the animal you're hunting, but also the um, so, you know, let's, let's talk a little bit about, you know, Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation and, you know, the, the conservation programs that, that the organization is, uh, actively engaged in. Um, you know, maybe you can, you know, are there like a, a couple sort of cool conservation projects that are ongoing that, you know, you want to highlight? Yes, I definitely could do that. Um, you know, let me, let me say first. We've got four main programs here uh, that we've been implementing really from our founding. Um, one is to protect land, and we do that through uh, key acquisitions that eventually move into public ownership with the U.S. Forest Service or Bureau of Land Management or state wildlife agencies. We do conservation easements, so we're a land trust um, with private landowners. Uh, that's one area. We also, a part of that more recently has been to work on access projects. So to uh, look at where we can acquire easements or parcels that uh, improve access to public lands. That, that's a really important one today for us. Uh, habitat stewardship, we're, we're one of those groups that really believe in working on the ground and want to get our uh, fingers dirty. So we uh, cost share on a lot of habitat stewardship projects, uh, forest thinning, weed spraying, uh, put in water developments, uh, aspen restoration, sagebrush restoration. Uh, that's one aspect of it. We also help restore elk to their native ranges. And we've helped uh, seven states in the eastern United States uh, bring elk back. Uh, uh, and put them in places they haven't been for well over 100 years. And then we also have an education and a conservation education hunting heritage outreach program. Uh, that's kind of our broad brush programs that we deliver here. Um, I guess a couple things that really um, projects that stand out today that we're working on. One is elk restoration. And the state of West Virginia is the most recent state to uh, decide they want to bring a native species back. Uh, this is the state wildlife agency with the support of the governor and, and their wildlife commission. And, and so just this week, um, uh, 52 elk from Arizona uh, have arrived in West Virginia. Those are wild free ranging elk that, uh, the state of Arizona agreed to, uh, capture and move to West Virginia. Uh, there's also a year ago, there was a small herd that went from Kentucky, uh, to West Virginia to start the restoration. So people just really, you know, love that kind of stuff, um, where you haven't had elk in 150 years, maybe in the mountains of West Virginia. Uh, now they're actively restoring them and hope to have a herd of 400 or so within the next couple of years. 
And we've done that in Virginia, um, Missouri uh, recently. Uh, we, it all kind of started in Wisconsin back in the mid-90s. Kentucky, uh, most people would not know that Kentucky has over 11,000 elk now. And that was a restoration that started in the late 1990s that we helped with. Uh, the cool story there is that that Kentucky herd that was restored, it is now the source herd for more restorations in the Appalachian countries, uh, states. So, uh, so that's something that, you know, I think epitomizes, uh, kind of what we're about. The other kind of example I give you are these, uh, these access projects. Um, you know, it goes back to our hunting roots. One of the number one reasons people say why they stop hunting is because of lack of access. So we've looked at that and uh, in the West where you do have a lot of public lands, but some of those public lands can be locked, locked out. Gate, you can have gates, uh, you can't get across the road. Uh, the public can't get to their lands. Uh, so this is an area we've been focusing on and we've had a couple projects. A few years ago, we had a project called Red Hill in uh, central Montana where one of our members uh, called us up and said, hey, there's 40 acres for sale. Um, I've, it's key to getting the public from a county road to the national forest. And we were able to step in pretty quickly by the 40 acres and then eventually um, uh, donated to uh, uh, donated to the Montana Fish, Wildlife, and Parks, who established a trailhead, and it gets the public now from a county road to about 20,000 acres of U.S. Forest Service lands that previously was difficult to access. Those are the kinds of things that we're doing um, that, that are really resonating with our membership today. Gotcha. Very cool. I the um, the elk restoration projects um, in the east are super fascinating to me. Um, just really, I mean, how neat that that this species can be extirpated from this area for, as you said, over a hundred years. And now they're back, and not just back, but thriving. Right? Yes, um, yeah, really, really cool to hear about that. Um, and Kentucky, uh, Kentucky gives over a uh, thousand licenses away for elk hunters. So what a you know, what a story there, right? And it's bringing back not just the species, but you know, uh, it's 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 um, I'm sure it's having you know positive impacts on the ecosystem there, but. As you said, it's also bringing back uh, a tradition of hunting that has been absent for a long time. So very cool, very cool. Um, and I also love that you brought up the the access issue. Um, so you know, one of the things I kind of want to touch on in this conversation is, um, you know, I want to touch on like a few sort of key conservation issues that um, you know, some of which I think are are polarizing you know, within this uh, sort of issue that we're talking about, about, you know, um, you know, hunters and, and environmentalists, you know, uh, sort of, I don't know, you know, dis disagreeing on certain things, like, there's so much that they agree on, right? <laughs> but right. it's like, there's certain, like, contentious issues that pull them apart and are polarizing. But then there are also issues that bring them together, right? And I think the, the access issue and, and public lands in general, is definitely an issue that I mean I think just within the last couple of years it's been remarkable how it's brought hunters and environmentalists together. Um, I mean, cl 
clearly Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation is like very actively involved um, in this issue. I mean, acquiring lands, um, you know, handing them over to uh, uh, you know, public agencies so that they become public, but also setting up easements. I mean, um, that's all, that's all really cool stuff. I mean, but I, I mean, I know that Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation is also you know active uh, to a certain extent politically, um, yes. and does some advocacy work. Um, I mean, is there any like involvement in, in advocacy regarding the, the public lands issue that Rocky Mountain Health Foundation has been involved with? Oh, oh yes, uh, a- absolutely. And th- that is one of those areas of work that has come about in the last oh, seven or eight years and probably a greater priority in the last two or three years for us. Um, you know, we've been pretty strong the uh, transfer of public land. So the potential transfer of federal lands to states uh, is one of those topics that's been in the news, you know, for a few years now. Um, We we don't support that. We've been very clear that um, uh, those lands need to stay in in federal ownership. What we do believe is they need to be managed better. Um, I think you, you go back a few years and there's kind of a strong preservationist role out there. And that's probably where, you know, we probably have maybe the greatest kind of difference with maybe some environmentalists who feel that, you know, preservation is is the thing to do and, and just let Mother Nature do its thing. We don't we don't follow that line. We're conservationists. Uh, that's a term, you know, we're pretty sensitive to. And, um, you know, we there are areas that can be preserved, but there are also many areas that need to be managed. Um, we got. 330 million people in this country, um, human impacts are all over the place, even in some of the wildest places that we have. So uh, we as uh, you know, human beings still need to be managing and engaged. And, and that's kind of that message through advocacy that, that we do. Um, one of our top priorities in advocacy work is um, uh, bringing some balance back to federal land management. Uh, um, we think we could stand to maybe harvest a little more timber in some places. We don't want to go back to massive clear cuts, certainly, but we're kind of at a place in much of the West and in the Eastern United States where a lot of our forests are in an overgrown state. And so they have closed canopy. Sunlight doesn't get to the floor. They become very mature, almost old growth forests. Well, historically fire would have opened those areas up and you would have had a mosaic of different habitats. And, and, and so for a hundred years, we were putting out the fire. Uh, so, um, you, and you can't burn everywhere because you got, again, a lot of people, you got houses, you got cabins, you got things in the woods. So, you know, our thinking is you need to manage those areas with mechanical uh, thinning or uh, um, prescribed fire or things like this. And so we, that's where we, it's kind of on the ground work that we believe needs to happen. We need, we've got to take that to Washington, D.C. and say, all right, folks, we, we need funding to do this. We need people on the ground to do this. We need laws to support this kind of activity, uh, this managed lands activity that we're interested in. And it's better for elk and a lot of other species. Uh, so, you know, we, yeah, we were advocating for, you know, uh, healthy federal budgets for our land management agencies. Um, you know, we've got too many, uh, another issue, horses and burrows, wild horses and burrows. And in the West, they're drastically overpopulated. Um, 
on Western lands. And so we advocate for better management there. Those and for this forestry reform stuff, that's been some of our top priorities. Um, you know, one of the issues, you know, regarding management and, and management of, you know, specific species on the landscape. I mean, one of the, one of these issues that is particularly contentious, um, and I think is polarizing, um, is wolf management. Um, and Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, I mean, has a very concrete stance on that issue. So maybe I'll just let you sort of explain that, and then maybe we can have a little bit of discussion. Okay. Yeah, wolf wolves on the ground is very controversial, uh, very polarizing. It certainly is in our membership, and uh, we got beat up pretty hard uh, back in the uh, late '90s, early 2000s, when wolves were, were being restored to the Northern Rocky Mountains. We kind of took the fence. Uh, we, we had even a statement that said we neither, neither oppose nor support. And, uh, you know, when you, when you do something like that, then everybody should match it. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, our position today is we try to be much more concrete about it. We don't support new restorations uh, of those species. Um, but where they now are going to naturally move around and, and, you know, Colorado is kind of the hot topic today. And our position is if they move into Colorado naturally, fine, the state needs to manage them. Uh, and, and that state-based management has worked here in Montana and Wyoming and in Idaho. Uh, wolves can have impacts on elk herds in, in certain locations. Certainly we've seen that. Um, or do they impact the, probably the larger, you know, global population. Uh, no, probably not. But certainly for people in certain areas, um, wolves can be pretty, pretty impactful. They're also impactful on ranchers and their, and their livelihoods. And so they create, they create just a whole other element of, um, of work uh, issues when, when they're on the landscape. The, the other, the other problem with wolf management, I think has been is that, you know, you had certain numbers agreed to early on that, um, you know, once we hit those numbers, we would delist. Um, you know, some groups haven't lived up to that agreement. Um, it, the wolf recovery became so successful in Montana and Idaho that groups kind of blew right by the, well, we just we agreed to have 300. Um, now we want 1,500. And that's that's something we don't like. Um, and you look at the Great Lakes states, uh, where wolves have been protected for a few decades. They have three or four thousand wolves. Uh, it's, they can be delisted. Their, their status is not in jeopardy anymore, but groups just continually fight that delisting. And that's something that's a bit of a significant concern to us. Yeah, the, 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 the delisting issue. I mean, it's so, I live in Boise, Idaho, so contentious where I live. Um, and it's tricky, right? Because as you said, I mean, you know, it's not easy. I mean, and and I mean, I think you guys have a a line akin to this on your website of like, we support science-based management. Like, yeah, that's easy to to make a statement like that. But like, what does that, what does that mean? Like, you know, uh, how many, how many wolves on the landscape equals a healthy ecosystem or a healthy population of, um, of wolves or a healthy, you know, healthy population of elk that also incorporates, um, you know, our role as hunters in taking certain. 
questions uh, as well, right? I mean, it's these are not easy questions to answer as a wildlife biologist, right? Right. Um, yeah. No, they're not easy. Uh, they're they're challenging questions on on what the right number is, and um, you, you know, with wolves their population increases here in the northern Rockies at the same time you've had increases in grizzly bear population uh, mountain lion populations have probably increased and so some of those impacts that we've seen on the landscape somewhat is due to you know, four large predators now black bear grizzly bear mountain lion and wolves all in these places and so trying to balance the impact of all those large predators and their impacts on an elk herd is, is tricky and uh, certainly up for a lot of debate at times. Yeah, for sure, for sure. And you know, I think I think a part of this is, um, well, I don't know. I mean, I, I've I've spoken to many hunters about this this issue. Um, it seems like a common thread is people get upset because you know they look back at at their childhood and, and you know what these landscapes looked like when they were growing up, and there weren't wolves. You know, yeah. and I think there is just this uh, this um, this intuition, or um, you know, to or, or this desire to like see the landscape, you know, through that lens of like, well, this is what I grew up with, you know. Um, but just because you grew up with the landscape looking that way doesn't mean that's like the way necessarily it, it, it should look like, or is you know the most health the, the healthiest. Uh, a way that an ecosystem um, can work, right? And, you know, you talked early on about, um, you know, sort of the, the origins of the conservation movement in the U.S., and it all started with Teddy Roosevelt. Um, and, you know, I think he would have advocated for maintaining predators on the landscape because he liked to go out and hunt them. Sure, yeah. Um, and, yeah. I mean, in reality, right, it's like it's been since the time of Teddy Roosevelt um, since we had numbers, you know, like this of predators on the landscape, you know, it hasn't been since the early 1900s that wolf populations and uh, grizzly bear populations have been at this level. You know? So it, I think it's understandable as to like why it's sort of a hard pill to swallow because it's been so long since you know, we've seen ecosystems looking like this. But that doesn't necessarily mean it's a bad thing. Yeah, there's certainly a cultural. Uh, very strong cultural influence of you know of thinking a certain way over many many decades. Right. Yeah. Is is uh, alive out there. So I mean, I, I guess I wonder, like, just as sort of a final like question on this this point of of wolf management, um, a lot of aspects about this issue are very tricky, right? Um, and it's not so easy to, like, for example, come up with, like, a number that's the ideal population size for wolves in any particular state, right? That's really difficult. Um, but I think there there is a lot of misinformation out there. Um, and, you know, I, I guess I just wonder if, if, you know, Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation is involved in sort of correcting any of those very common misconceptions about wolf management. I mean, one of them that I hear all the time is this concept that, oh, the wolves that were reintroduced in Idaho and Yellowstone are a different species, and they're much, much bigger than the wolves that, are, that you know, were originally here, and they're, and they just kill animals for fun, you know? Um, and I, it's like, I just, it drives me crazy that this perspective is so pervasive and also clearly false. 
Yeah. Well, we we are contributing um, a fair amount of money annually to different studies um, related to wolves uh, and, frankly, all predators and their impacts on on elk numbers. And so, what you know, what we feel very proud of is that we're not shying away from it. You know, we're willing to put our money in there to create more science-based information that then can go into uh, helping the state and the federal managers make good decisions about um, predator populations and, and what, you know, what the carrying capacity is or what the social carrying capacity is of those numbers out there. Um, what, you know, one of the big debates has been, you know, just how accurate are the population uh, surveys that that are done. And uh, here in Montana, um, we've got the University of Montana uh, working on developing what they call a patch occupancy model. So it's trying to bring into kind of a, a computer-based model that would um, give us more accurate numbers on wolf population estimates. Um, of course, you, you probably know, I mean, wolves are hard to uh, estimate, uh, you know, an aerial count and things like that. So, you know, what we've tried to do is, um, yeah, expand the science, the scientific knowledge out there and then allow uh, agency managers and, of course, all the decisions and things they do, there's a lot of public input that goes into them. Uh, they're, they're publicly driven agencies. And so we feel if we can contribute to those uh, decisions they make and encourage our members to get involved in those public discussions about what's the right number, where are we going, then that, that's kind of where we want to be. Um. I'm going to shift here um, to talk about another conservation issue that I, I think is another one of these issues um, that that can be polarizing, um, maybe not as contentious as the wolf issue, um, but that's the, the topic of um, lead in ammunition and its potential to, um, to poison uh, scavengers and, well, any animals that are scavenging um, on the landscape. Um, I mean, this is, I actually have, I'm not aware if Rocky Mountain Health Foundation like has a stance on this issue or is involved in any way. So I'm just curious to hear like, you know, what level of awareness you have of this topic and if Rocky Mountain Health Foundation is doing anything uh, related to this. Well, I'm very aware of the topic and uh, certainly have been following it, reading about it and engaged in it to a degree for um, several years now. Um, we have not taken a position on it here. Um, I guess what's the best kind of thing? Um, I, I just, I know there's, uh, it, it's, a, I guess, again, a, a topic where we're willing to help fund good science-based studies on those impacts out there. Um, you know, we do recognize that moving to non-lead Substitutes can have a financial impact on hunters and shooters, uh, so we're concerned about that. Uh, there are not, there are some alternatives, and I, and I think more big game hunters all the time are kind of moving to copper bullets and and things like that. Um, you know, probably when you get to shooters, you know, people that shoot a lot of ammo and requiring them to shoot non-lead, that's when you get into this financial impact. Now, some states, California for one, 
uh, has now been very aggressive in moving to uh, a completely non-lead uh, system. Um, and again, I guess I'd say we track it. Um, had some states like Minnesota, the state wildlife agency took some action or attempted to take some action a year ago about um, wanting folks to use um, non-lead on their wildlife management areas. And those were areas, not, not waterfowl areas. So we tracked that. We're involved in a national group called American Wildlife Conservation Partners, which are about 50 of the leading sportsman groups in the country. And we kind of work with that national group with people in D.C. to kind of uh, try to, uh, you know, again, stay engaged and see, try to influence legislation as best we can for the benefit of our, our members. It tends to be, uh, I think, the way we approach it is, it's, and probably one of those things, let's contribute to the science and let's allow our members and the public through public processes to make their own decisions about where they go with that. Now, now I would say we have signed on letters opposing um, federal regulation of, of lead uh, in sports, in, in shot, and in uh, fishing sinkers and things like that. Uh, from a population standpoint, I believe, you know, our feeling from a population standpoint of species, it's not necessarily a risk, unless you're going to talk about condors or something like that. Um, but that's kind of kind of where we've kind of positioned ourselves. But I did just tell our guys a week ago, uh, something came up, uh, I think over in Oregon, there's uh, some groups going to do some talking about lead ammo, going to uh, look at some studies. Uh, and I said, let's be engaged. Let's, uh, we need to stay on top of this. We need to um, get, you know, uh, understand the best science that's out there yeah. and, and see how this moves forward. Yeah, you know, I, I think th this issue is, um, it's it's an interesting sort of example, right, of this big picture topic that we're discussing of like, you know, uh, how can hunters and environmentalists sort of come together and find these, these points of agreement, right? I, I just, I would imagine that the benefit of having these voluntary programs like the one in Arizona, and I believe there's similar voluntary efforts going on in other states like Utah. Um, yeah, where, yeah, and like those voluntary efforts are so great, and it's like such a great demonstration of hunters willingly taking that step and showing that, like, hey, I support conservation because you know this is clearly a problem, and I don't want to unintentionally poison eagles um, or other scavenging species when I harvest my deer or elk, um, and so I'm going to use this other type of ammunition. There are, you know, there's some other groups. There's the Wildlife Management Institute. Um, Congressional Sportsman's Foundation. These would be some groups that we would tend to kind of take a, a lead from. You know, if I think I saw a Wildlife Management Institute, um, you know, take a pretty strong stance on lead, we'd probably tend to follow along a little bit then, um, or look for some of the groups that have expertise and follow this issue very closely. To see them go one way or another, that would help us probably. Yeah, we have started to see groups um, like the Teddy Roosevelt Conservation Partnership and Backcountry Hunters, Hunters and Anglers that have started supporting voluntary programs. Uh, well, I, I would definitely get behind the voluntary programs. I think that's great, and it, it leads you know it leaves it into the, the individual's hands. Sure. But you can educate them, you can explain it to them. Sure. Well, yeah, and I, I think I mean that's what's so unique about 
you know, I think specifically this project in Arizona is like, I mean, the results are remarkable, right? Like just to have this very simple education and outreach project, um, a little bit of funding to offer, you know, that first free box of ammunition and you get 90% of hunters using the non-lead stuff, you know? Um, so our, our history has been, we're a little more of a carrot than a stick group. And so you like the voluntary programs, can we offer some incentive to get people in that direction? Absolutely. Um, so, I mean, this, this issue is, is connected to sort of my next question, right? And, and it's also connected to the, to the history of, you know, this connection between um, conservation and, and hunting. You know, we talked uh, early on about Teddy Roosevelt, and, you know, how he was really one of the founders of our modern conservation movement. Um, he was a hunter. Um, and, you know, I, I, one of the things that I think is, is, um, is unique about Teddy Roosevelt's and that is, you know, not often talked about within the context of like his influence over conservation and, and, and hunting and, and, and all of this is that he was an extraordinarily progressive politician, <laughs> right? And like, right. we think of, uh, you know, politically, right? I mean, we connect hunters with like very conservative politics these days, but a hundred years ago, I mean, Teddy Roosevelt was one of the most remarkably progressive presidents, you know, that our country had seen up until that point. Um, and he was yeah. an avid hunter, you know, and it's, it's right. just like remarkable to, to see like how dramatically different that is now. Um, but one of the things that, that, you know, I think we're starting to see is we're starting to see, you know, uh, uh, a new type of hunter. Right. We're starting to see, um, I, I think, a lot of the, uh, the younger folks that, that are getting into hunting. Um, it's not that they're getting into it for different reasons than, you know, than, than uh, other hunters are, you know, um, but they're, they're finding new reasons to get into it. And they're finding new avenues to get interested in, in, in hunting. And, um, and, and I think a lot of these people, you know, do have sort of politics that more progressive and, and very different from like what we typically associate with um, you know, the hunting community. Um, so in that vein, and, you know, I, I want to sort of touch on, you know, this current moment and like what's going on right now with this uh, debate over gun control, um, because there've been a number of like, uh, you know, I, I've seen a number of op-ed pieces prominent newspapers these past couple of weeks of um, hunters, um, you know, calling on other hunters to support reasonable gun control, measures, right? Like, like, what's the feeling in, in, in the office, like, regarding this issue, right? Because I mean, hunting is so connected in, uh, in a lot of people's minds, and also just practically, because it, you know, guns are the tools that most people use to hunt with, you know, this very contentious issue of gun control. Um, and certainly a lot of hunters are, you know, doubling down and they're supporting the NRA and, you know, uh, not wanting any, any further regulations on, on guns. Um, but there is this, I think, growing, you know, subset of the, the hunting population that comes from a more progressive background and is willing to like give up, you know, uh, you know, like willing to accept, like it's okay for, 
it to be more difficult for me to go purchase a gun you know, in exchange for the societal benefits that come along with that, um, as long as I am still able to you know, go out and hunt. Well, we spent a couple days as a leadership team, as well as our board, talking about this last week. Um, so, uh, again, yeah, it's right on front page news out here for, for a while, a few weeks now. I guess, you know, a couple things. Um, we're a strong supporter as an organization of the Second Amendment and uh, the right of people to keep and bear arms legally. Um, we do use them, obviously, in our fundraising efforts, and uh, and they're the tool, uh, one of you know, certainly the big tool in hunting. Um, I think, you know, you just asked a little bit about the sense around the office. It feels like people around the office sense that there might be a little bit of change in the air. Um, I think it was definitely that way a week ago. Now, <laughs> you know, you watch Congress and... Uh, <laughs> That you know they they don't move too fast uh, most of the time. So will it will it kind of wear off? And you know does a you know we've got a midterm elections coming up here. Uh, I think they tend to start to think, well, how is this going to you know impact uh, elections? So I, I don't know that anything. It's hard to say really if anything will change. Um, from our just from a couple standpoints here. Um, I think, you know, we are supporting the, the bill, and I forget the bill number, but it's 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 one of the positive things introduced about more funding, so states can get uh, background check information in to the NICS system. Obviously, that is an easy one, probably, and yeah, we need to have all the best information we can into that background check system. So we definitely support that. Our members are all over the place on this topic, and we've heard from a significant bunch of them in the last couple of weeks, and they're on both extremes. Um, and so, of course, as a you know a membership organization, two hundred twenty-seven thousand members, you're going to get a, a wide degree of feeling about this, and and we'll, we're just going to continue to be kind of careful about about it as we go forward. Uh, but again, support the Second Amendment. Um, we encourage our members to get involved in this thing and work through their local legislators and their state and federal legislators and uh, take it where they, they think it needs to be taken. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's, it's, it's particularly interesting to hear about um, both, you know, what the, what the sort of feeling or, or sense is like within the office at the Rocky Mountain Health Foundation, but also within your membership, right? Um, and and I think I think it's really interesting to hear about that and to hear about the differences in opinion and how the, your membership is all over the place um, on both extremes. I mean, I think I think it's valuable for people just to know just that, right? Like yes. hunters don't all fit this stereotype that a lot of people have, and there are a lot of hunters that you know fit certain aspects of it, but there are also a lot of hunters that you know are out there fighting for uh, additional gun control. Um, and I, I, I think just that in and of itself is, is an, an important, important thing. Yeah. And on all these issues we've talked about, one thing I've learned in 18 years here, this organization, um, 
people might perceive it to be a little right, but we we are covering the spectrum here, and even wolves, lead ammo, um, other you name a number of other topics. Um, heck, our forestry initiative. We'll have people here that are totally wilderness people, uh, and then you got people over here that want you know heck a lot more logging, and so that's what we do is we spend a lot of time trying to balance, you know, and then again go back to the science, go back to what's best for elk. Uh, what's best for the hunter and come out in that, in that area because we know we have a lot of members on both sides of the issue, whatever the issue is. Yeah. And it's, I mean, it's, it's a very tricky situation, right? And I mean, I think specifically for the organization you work for, um, I mean, do you like, I mean, obviously you're looking at science, right? Um, to, to sort of guide the, um, the management practices and you know the, the advocacy stances that the organization takes, um, but I assume you're also like taking into account um, the viewpoints and perspectives of the membership. I mean, is there any kind of formalized oh, yeah. way to like sort of gauge that? And how does that you know how how does like what role does that play in those that decision making process? Um. Well, we do do surveys and try to keep tabs of what our members are, are thinking out there. Um, we do a large survey every five years. More recently, we've been doing some surveys through Facebook. And uh, just, you know, on a program level, uh, we just did a Facebook survey within the last year. And it ranked this advocacy effort, I think, number two uh, next to our lands work. We were very surprised at that. And... Uh, you know, so that confirmed to us we need to be engaged, we need to be advocating for the things that are best again for elk and hunters. Um, you know, hunters as a group are, you know, of course there's strong opinions and and we argue amongst ourselves between, you know, rifle hunters and shotgun hunters and traditional bow hunters and compound bow hunters and and that that's one of our kind of our issues out there as a hunting body is we're kind of splintered. And it even gets into backcountry hunters versus front country hunters and wilderness hunters. And I hike and, and, and we, we struggle with that in this organization. We got a lot of hikers and backcountry hunters. We got a lot of guys like ATV around and uh, hunt from their pickup, you know, uh, you know, or walk from the pickup kind of thing. So all, all that, you know, we're just always trying to maneuver, I guess, through that, um, those, truths that are out there and then come up with the best position that we think is going to be best for the most people and, and the wildlife. Thanks again. I mean, this was a, a super interesting conversation. Um, and uh, yeah, I appreciate your time. Okay. Well, thanks for reaching out and yeah, good luck. To learn more about the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, you can find a link on the show notes page at wildlandsinc.org slash EOC 144. This episode was produced by myself, Catherine Dunning, and hosted by Matt Podolsky. Our theme music is by The Humidors.